What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to yet another episode of Sheehan's World. Today, I have a very special guest stepping into world to add to the very diverse list of guests I have had come on to the show. He's currently my professor at Assumption University. I take his ethical responsibility in sports class, which I love so much and which has taught me so much. And today, I am having him step into the world just to talk about that, talk about ethics, talk about the importance of ethics and why it should be consistently practiced in everyday life, basically. So today, I have stepping into the world, my professor, Zachary Bryant. Professor Bryant, how are you today? Very good. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Thank you for coming on. This is going to be some great conversation, like I said before the show. So as I told you, I always start my show off by asking my guests where they're from and what they're currently doing in their life. So tell me, where are you from and what are you currently doing? <laughs> sure. So uh, I'm originally from the Bay Area, California, which is just a little south of San Francisco. I uh, stayed there for about 28 years of my life before I headed out here um, to Massachusetts, and I now live in sunny Springfield, um, and I am finishing up a PhD in physical education with a concentration in sports psychology, and I am adjunct professor at Assumption University as well as Springfield College. That's awesome. So tell me, you um, studied kinesiology. And you did that. Where did, where did you go to school again? Uh, so for my undergrad, I went to University of California, Santa Barbara. If okay. you don't know, it uh, historically was in the top 10 party schools by uh, Playboy's uh, ranking. <laughs> After that, I went to San Jose State University um, in San Jose, California. That's where I got my master's in kinesiology with, again, a concentration in sports psychology. And I'm currently finishing up at Springfield College um, their PhD in physical education. Okay, so real quick to get into it, can you just explain to me what uh, kinesiology is? Sure, um, it's a long answer, but I'll give you a short one. It is the study of the body and every way that we interact within the world. So it has a variety of subsystems within it, but you can look at exercise physiology, motor learning, motor development, sports psychology, biomechanics, all of that are under the umbrella term of kinesiology or physical education. Okay, awesome, awesome. So how does, how is it that you went for kinesiology and now it's translating to what you currently do, which is teaching people like me uh, the ethics of sports? Right, it's a great question. Um, so my big emphasis when I got out here to do my PhD was um, uh, something else I do in my time is work with athletes on performance enhancement. So we typically do mental skills such as goal setting, um, imagery, body relaxation, uh, energy management, all types of skills. Um, so what I realized throughout that work with those athletes was that ultimately I needed to have a philosophy because with most things, once you get to an advanced enough level, everyone essentially teaches the same skill set. And so what it becomes is not what you're teaching, but how you're teaching it and specifically what informs your teaching. So my emphasis, once I got out here was I said, I need to have a philosophy on life. I need to know exactly who I am, what I stand for and have that come through in every interaction that I'm going to have. So 
through that, I started exploring, spent a lot of time in critical self-reflection. Um, and ultimately, I came up with a very simple philosophy for life, which has really helped me out. And kind of after you've developed a philosophy, you continue forward. And ideally, it should inform your ethics, which are could be seen as universal properties of right and wrong. I guess I should probably backtrack, say, for me, I have a very simple philosophy on life. I pursue happiness, and I pursue happiness unless my own happiness interferes with someone else's happiness and or hurts them in any way. So one caveat, I pursue my own happiness unless that can somehow come in conflict with someone else's life. Okay. All right. So, yeah, that's actually what I was going to ask you, uh, what your philosophy is behind it. So... When it comes to, you know, just pursuing your own happiness, you know, staying out of the way of others, um, have there been times where your profession has come into conflict and it has, let's say, rubbed people off the wrong way or anything of that sort on your on your pursuit to your own happiness, of course? <laughs> yeah, it's um, a good question again. You tend to find like as you continue forward and throughout life, um, you're going to run into a variety of different personalities. Um, you know, I have had the pleasure of working for amazing bosses. Um, so, I mean, I coached baseball for 10 years. Mm -hmm. My first year in college, uh, my first year as a college coach, I nearly quit within two weeks just because of how poorly my boss was. So as a point of emphasis, Pretty much me and the rest of the assistant coaches, we all came to the conclusion that he didn't know who he was. Day to day, he could be your best friend and Mr. Nice Guy. The other day, he would be MFing you, chilling you out completely in front of the athletes or to the athletes. He didn't know who he was as a leader. He didn't know who he was as a coach or as someone who taught young men the skills of baseball. Problematically, whenever he would recruit, he was Mr. Christian, which, again, I think it's great if you have religion. Um, I think it's atrocious if you have religion and then violate everything it is that those standards are built upon, which is yep. why I had such a problem with institutions. But he would recruit as, I want you to be a better man. I want you to be a better father. I want you to be a better Christian. And then I want you to be a better baseball player. And then once we got on the field or on the yard, he would consistently violate those principles, violate everything it was that he was selling. Um, so with me, this was the first time I had, you know, worked at the collegiate level and this was my introduction to it. And I realized like, what was I going to do? Was I someone who would kowtow to this person and just say yes to everything, acknowledge everything he was saying as if it was correct? Or did I need to stand up for myself? understand that I would not be promoted because I was standing for something that I believed in. Ultimately, I ended up leaving after a year. Um, I tried to maintain the relationship as well as I could. But when I disagreed, I've always been someone where if I disagree, I'll tell you, I will tell you right away. So that has definitely come into conflict with me um, over the years. So that was one example. Another example is I have an amazing boss who's hired me again for the summer to continue coaching baseball. And he is someone that 
gave me a shot very early in my career and has always treated me well in every way. You know, he supports me. He has aided in my process of becoming a better baseball coach. And he has always made sure I was taken care of, paid well, um, made special allowances to say, I appreciate what you do. And I couldn't do this without you. Mm-hmm. Not a big step to take, but again, something that a lot of people don't acknowledge. So for me, I understood that, okay, this is someone that no matter what I would move heaven and earth for. And so I got to see an example of someone that I wanted to be, of a way that I wanted to treat people, of a way that I should be a leader within the field that I chose to. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I've had, circling back to your original question, I have definitely had chances or opportunities where my ethics have come in conflict with my boss. I've also had opportunities to grow my own sense of philosophy, personal well-being within a nurturing environment. So I've had both. So with that experience, with that coach who's selling something and not really following through on it, what did that really teach you being a, uh, being a baseball coach? How did that help you uh, to become better and understand uh, your players better? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty simple. Baseball is life. You fail that much in a sport, you're going to understand how to deal with the rest of your life. But ultimately... I understood one very simple thing about myself and I was going to be a man of my word. And that was Mm -hmm. wildly important to me. Most people will say it. I actually live it. And for me, sometimes that means that I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to have late nights. I am going to answer the phone at 2 a.m. and drive to the airport. Um, I had an ex-girlfriend that got a DUI at four in the morning and called me 16 times until I finally picked up because I'm a heavy sleeper. I went, got her, picked her up and we weren't dating at the time, but I said I would always be there for her. And I was, I've had plenty of opportunities um, where it's just worked against me. But the thing is at the end of the day, no matter what, even if I have difficult days, difficult weeks, even if something about my personality may rub you wrong, you understand that if I say it, it's done. I'm dependable. And my word is everything. Mm -hmm. And so Working with that coach, I got to understand the importance of if you say something, it's done, or if you say something, it's true. And if you walk through life and people constantly believe that about you, you're going to be in a very good place. Right, right. And I and I believe that as well. Like if you're going to say something and you do it, then that shows like who you are as a person. I've known, um, just like yourself, I've been through many experiences where um, for example, I had a coach back in high school who would say stuff and then he wouldn't follow on his word. And even outside of sports, I have people do the same thing where they say one thing and then they completely do the opposite. So in my own personal experience, I've been able to learn how to deal with it, how not to be, um, and how to just be a good human being, basically. So from your experience, you were able to take that and you were able to, um, really practice how consistent your word would be, right? You, your word wouldn't be empty promises. Your word would be, word would be fulfilled. So um, I got to ask you to keep going with that. When being a baseball coach, um, and you said you have been a baseball coach for the past 10 years, correct? That's right. What is it that you try to take out of your own 
um, I guess, personal teachings and try to ingrain into your into your players? What is the most important thing that uh, you want your players to know uh, when being a baseball coach? Mm. That's a good question. So, I mean, coaching and teaching are basically the same thing, in my opinion. Um, mm. You know, we've all heard the old adages, they don't care what you know until they know that you care. And it's absolutely correct. I also lean on another practice that um, – I was told early in my teaching career, I had you know someone come in and he's actually helping to supervise my dissertation right now. And he said something very impactful to me, which was, I can't teach you anything, but I hope that I can help you to learn. And so I started to understand that in a deep level, because it's one thing to hear the words and it's another thing to understand. Quick side bent, have you, um, you heard of um, Bruce Lee at all? Bruce Lee, yes. <laughs> okay. Figured, but past your generation. Anyways, so there's some um, ancient Chinese sayings. Um, and one of them is, at first, a mountain is a mountain. And next, a mountain is more than a mountain. And then finally, a mountain is a mountain again. And the idea being that at first, you don't really understand it. You just see a mountain. Yep. And then you become extremely educated on something. Have you ever met someone who just got into fitness? Yes. Okay, so they start yeah. telling you about the exact arm angle you need to be at for yeah. the concentration curls and tweaking everything about how you work out, right? So now suddenly this mountain is more than a mountain. It is actually the accumulation of molecules and rocks and ages and this and that. And then eventually you get to a place where you understand something so deeply that it just is, right? That it is just a part of you, right? So for those same fitness people, Working out is just a component of their life, right? Eating properly, all that, watching other people do it, not needing to tweak and curtail, knowing exactly what the feel is so you don't need to have an abacus out and check the actual angle <laughs> on your curls, right? It just is again. Right. And so I've always really liked that phrase and it always helps me understand where I'm at with any process. So am I at a place where I need to over-intellectualize something and show you how smart I am, show you how much I know to actually prove my value? Or am I at a place where I understand something so deeply that it doesn't matter to me if I prove to you that I know more or I'm this talented, but rather what's going to come out ultimately is that through simple, calm, nurturing energy, you are then going to buy into what it is because things are just so simple. Right. So again, think of technical sport coaching. There are some times where you need to be very technical with it. But if you are trying to explain something that is so complex as a body mechanic, as opposed to a coach that can give you a simple cue, right? Like right. pocket to pocket. Now for younger kids, that really helps. I'm not a running coach, right? But there are simple things within your body that will give you perfect cues that are representative of everything it is that that motion needs to have. So the idea is that, first off, as a coach, you need to explain things in several different ways. But you should understand something so deeply that you can explain it to a child. Mm -hmm. Or that simple explanation could apply to the highest level of athlete and they would instantly get it as a quick fix. Circling back ultimately to what your question was. What do I want my players to take away from me? Oh, what I hope they take away is that, again, I'm not here to, I'm here to help and to guide. And so I have what tends to be a pretty hands-off approach when it comes to something like this, um, which 
at first is terrifying. Um, there are some classes or things I teach where I don't take a hands-off approach because I don't feel comfortable in it, but mm -hmm. where I feel in my element, ultimately I understand that it is my baseball players who drive their success. It is my students who are going to drive their own success. I'm here as a guide. I'm here as someone who is going to show you the way and ideally do that in a an affable way in something where you kind of want to be around me. You want to work for me a little bit, but ultimately you need to, you need to have expertise within the situation. You need to have, you need to understand something deeply. And in that way you can then let go of control. Right. Right. I like how you were saying um, basically the success comes straight from the player or the student itself, which I firmly believe in as well. And I think, uh, your method of doing it, whereas just being the guide, uh, instead of being extremely technical on everything, I think is the most helpful way of doing it. Um, you were talking about, you know, seeing the mountain, understanding the mountain, and then, you know, really knowing the mountain. Um, something that I, I like to um, think of and what my uncle has uh, truly ingrained into my brain is, you know, the, the, uh, trying to think of another word i'll just say it, the the 10,000 hours mm -hmm. you know you won't become a true master until you get your 10,000 hours in so with ethics do you believe there's that sort of 10,000 hours that goes into it like do you believe like ethics is extremely hard to understand or is it more simplistic than what people think um so i'll give you the quick answer then i'm going to back up address the 10,000 hour component um, like anything that's worth having in life, the answer is simple, but understanding it is complex, right? Right. So right, like anything right. else, right? So you're stressed out. Okay. So I'll, I tell you, but take a deep breath, right? Simple answer. And it's true. Now, unless I can actually get you to do that the right way and buy into the entirety of the process, then it's just kind of words. Right. So very quickly, do you know where the 10,000 hour rule comes from? I do not actually. <laughs> so it's fascinating. It comes from this researcher named Erickson. And Erickson ultimately studied the difference between grandmasters and masters in chess. So the difference being a grandmaster is the highest level you can achieve in chess. And then you have masters who are nearly as skilled, however, aren't ranked at that highest level. Okay. So ultimately what Erickson found was the difference was what was called deliberate practice. So the idea being that these grandmasters, those who ultimately went on to the highest possible level you could achieve in, in chess, purposely sat down with a difficult situation and for hours on end made themselves struggle with really, really difficult situations. On the same vein, they would also go to tournaments where they were ranked the exact same. All their opponents were either slightly or equal to or slightly above their own level. So every single thing that they did, even when they performed, was a challenge. It stretched them to their limits. It's where we get this concept. Um, that's getting off track. We'll get back to flow. It's my research. Anyways, <laughs> um, so they were always stretching themselves to the very limits of their capabilities or slightly just beyond. And that was what was known as deliberate practice. And then those who only reached the master level, they weren't grandmasters in chess, they engaged with either opponents who were extremely easy or mm -hmm. opponents who were extremely 
gifted, like way beyond their skill level. So either way, they were never ultimately challenging themselves. And this is where this all, all starts to make sense. There were people that went through the motions, right? When you're at practice, are you going through the motions? Are you doing the work, but you're going through the motions? Or are you specifically focusing on how to develop your skill set to that next level? Are you actually pushing yourself? Because again, practice is where we get there. So the main difference was if you went to the highest level in chess, you engaged in deliberate practice. Now, again, those 10,000 hours are important. But what he found was that those who got to the grandmaster level engaged in approximately 6,000 or more hours of deliberate practice over their 10,000 hour mark, right? So within their 10,000 hours, at least 60% was devoted to deliberate practice, to stretching yourself as far as you could go cognitively. Wow. So yeah, like, what, you're, what you're saying there is actually kind of wild. So what you said again, like deliberate practice, they're going for the, like, the highest grade of difficulty possible, right? That That is honestly fascinating because, you know, when you, as you were just saying, like when you practice, like you're usually just practicing and you're focusing on certain things, but you don't really focus on the certain things that are the hardest or, or do those certain things consistently at the hardest level, um, which makes it so cool just to like hear you say, um, talking about it just because it, it's so cool to hear you talking about it because then it kind of, it makes you think in a different way. It makes you think about how you practicing. It makes you think um, like, for example, in my podcast, if I'm doing it the right way, if I'm practicing it the right way, you know? So that's definitely interesting to hear when it comes to ethics and, you know, being able to understand everything and, you know, how it, you know, kind of makes you go towards being a better human being, I guess you could say. Why is it so important to have ethics just in today's day and age, especially? So I'm going to try and frame this and not reveal my political leanings, but (laughs) there are things that are just going to come through. Um, So quick note, I don't know if you've ever seen all the tweets that go around the Instagram posts, and it's just like, these might be the websites I'm frequently frequenting, but they find that people who engage or go and pursue higher education, especially beyond the bachelor's level, um, tend to be left-leaning in nature. Now, left being progressive and then right being conservative. Again, Mm -hmm. I'm not in a Republican Democrat. I am just saying political ideology. Those who engage in a higher level of education tend to be left-leaning. Because what you realize is you become a more critical examiner of knowledge. So the beauty of ethics and the beauty of trying to struggle with your own philosophy is that in ethics, if you read, like you could go back, read Plato and Aristotle, and it would bust your brain open. And ultimately, you're going to get to one central truth, which is we don't have a universal metric for right and wrong. The only thing that matters when it comes to ethics is struggling with the question and then reflecting as deeply as you can on who you are, where your beliefs come from, right? So trying to reveal the bias that exists within all of us. If you feel like something is inherently right or wrong, first off, is that a universal law? We'll never get to that answer. But does that seem like it is something that could be applied universally to humanity um, in every situation? Or 
is that something where you go, well, I think that's wrong, but it turns out you were just a privileged person from the richest country within the entire world, right? So we have these blinders that we need to try and take off if we're gonna assess things at a universal level. It's extremely hard. We all have blind spots. We all do it. The key is that we struggle and we reason through it and we try to apply logic as much as we can. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult question, right? And so why is it more important than, than ever now? You need to be a critical examiner of information. We need to know that, again, I'm not trying to go too far out here, but we need to know that 50 people in America control 50% of the wealth. We need to know that we produce as much food as we do in the world, which can feed 10 billion people and over 50% of it is thrown away. We need to know that we have literally housing for everyone in America plus 20%, right? So looking at it from any perspective, we shouldn't have world hunger. We shouldn't have homelessness. We have the richest country in the world. If most people can agree that 20% on taxes is pretty fair. And then once you look at our gross domestic product, right, which is $20 trillion, if we had 20% of that, now we're talking $4 trillion to spend, right? Right. Across the board, which is more than we have. So we can take economic principles. We can just look at the facts that are there and we can say, okay, is this right or wrong? If you have enough food in the world to feed all of it and then some, or you can house everyone in the world and then some, to what reason are we then saying we should have homelessness? We should have starvation. Because when you start to think at it, most people will say, well, they're homeless because they don't work, right? That's a very American thing. They're homeless because they're lazy, right? They're not eating because they're lazy. We love to say that in America. And it's just like, well, is that true? Have we talked to every single person who's homeless and who's hungry? Or is this a bias that we have because we grew up in this country where we're told, well, if you work hard, you'll make it to the top. And what separates the billionaires? Hard work, except it's exploitation of workers, barring unionization, and then, you know, having your parents have a diamond and an emerald mine. Inheritance as well definitely helps. I think that is such a, speaking of, of homelessness real quick, um, I actually tried bringing a project to the Worcester Red Sox to help with the homeless community in Worcester. Um, and unfortunately didn't go through uh, basically just because they moved to the city this year, everything like that, it just didn't work out. Uh, but that's one of the mi- very misunderstood things about homeless people is that they just like don't want to work or they're lazy or anything like that. I probably some of the most misunderstood people ever. Um, I think it's a very good point to bring that up because again, like not a, a lot of people will think about that. Not a lot of people will realize that, you know, that homeless people, they're not there because they want to be there or they're not there because they worked hard or didn't work hard enough. It's because they were given unfortunate circumstances, right? From either the very beginning or somewhere down the line, they were hit with something. Um, and I think the homeless, again, like there's many people that say that, you know, finding a home for a homeless person is impossible. Uh, I don't really believe a hundred percent in the impossible because I think things can be done. It's just Mm -hmm. a matter of, you know, putting the right effort towards it. But I I see it all the time in Worcester. I I see this one homeless man. Um, I don't know if 
you'll understand the intersection I'm talking about. It's right before you get on 290. It's where the Worcester police headquarters are. And then you have the, uh, the health college right there. It's one of the yeah. biggest intersections. Yeah. Um, I always see this one guy and like, I, I never have money or anything to give him, which I always feel like so crappy about because I want to help him in some way. But like the, the way I try to help him is just trying to make his day better. I mean, like saying hi to him, trying to have a conversation with him. Like these people are great people. It's just that no one wants to take the time out of their day to actually want to understand them and how they got into that situation and like what they've tried to do. Because I've, I've seen that guy since I've got to Assumption for the past four years at the same spot mm. every single day. And it's like, I tried having this conversation about one of my friends, like what makes the homeless so hard to understand is that you can't understand them. There's a lot of things like, that they can't control, whether that be mentally, whether that be financially. And it's just not easy for them to go get a job and say, Hey, I got a job because yeah, you can get a job and make minimum wage. But once you get that minimum wage, like all that money is going to go into something else like bills or something like they don't have the money to actually build for themselves to get a home or get an apartment. So I think that's, I, I love that you brought that up because like, homelessness is such a huge issue that people don't even want to touch upon mm -hmm. but it's because like people don't want to understand them people don't want to take the time to see what it actually is people just move on and say oh they just didn't work hard enough and that's what you'll find with a lot of people um and especially those you end up wanting to avoid is whenever you um feel or hear someone taking a moral high ground with you right that's the person you immediately want to avoid right like once they either connect to say something, 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 a higher power, they address some sort of thing that is intangible, but that they believe in, or that is a component of them, the way they grew up, what have you. Once someone takes a moral high ground with you, just step out of that conversation. Because yeah. ultimately you'll never win. And it's kind of like Einstein used to say is never get into an argument with a stupid person because they will drag you down to their level and beat you with experience. Wow. Yeah. That's a, that's a good quote right there. That's a good one. That's a perfect example. I've had many times where I've had to get into conversations and then it just gets to the point. I'm like, why am I still having this? Like, it just doesn't make sense. Um, I want to get into ethics in sports more specifically. Sure. Why is ethics so important in sports nowadays? You know, with um, a great example that I've brought up in classes uh, at the NCAA basketball tournament, Everyone saw it. I mean, the NCAA got ex completely exposed by giving all the men's uh, a whole room worth of weight room equipment and the woman's side gets one little tiny rack. So tell me, why is ethics in sports so important nowadays? Well, first off, I want to address that you said a great example that I brought up. So nice. Song. Right. <laughs> Secondly, I don't want to get too far into it because that's your final. Um, but wait Why what'd you say I, what'd you say did <laughs> you give away a hint there Nah, you're you're gonna get the the day before anyway <laughs> um why is it so important ultimately we're in a great place now um especially within america like i have my own personal feelings about like the ubiquity of social media and our prevalence of being on the phone however with that being said we are able to start understanding more narratives now, right? So we don't only have to go on the media. We don't only have to take in general our 
historical as well as cultural media messages from a older white person who trips as he goes upstairs to an airplane, right? Like, again, I love social media for that. Why is it so important? Because without social media, without this ubiquity of cell phone usage, we wouldn't be in a place where we could understand more diverse narratives. Like, we couldn't have had the proliferation of the Me Too movement, right? So much of what goes on that most people could agree is wrong. Like it's wrong to have a male coach that like makes sexual advances at his female student athletes. Without a proliferation of more diverse narratives, we would never get that. So it's really important now because so many of us get into sports and love to study sports because it was this place. It's this, it's so funny. It's this place of purity, right? It is this place where it's why most of us love it because it was a place we could go where everything else in the world fell away. Right. So if you run, right. And you start to get that runner's high, all that exists is the next step for you. All that exists is focusing on your breathing. When I stepped on the baseball field, I knew I had three hours that was just here, nowhere else. I would come away exhausted, sweating, but I was so invested in the moment. There was nothing else that was there for me. And so we all come at this whenever we watch football, whenever we watch basketball, baseball, major sports, anything it is that we're into, we always want to get taken back to that place. We always want to understand the stories of the athletes and we want it to exist as this pure thing. But what we need to understand and what we need to pay more attention to, like with your example of NC2A is that it is not. It is inherently a political place. It was inherently a place of inequality. It is by its nature, since it was designed, a place for the haves to beat the have-nots. And so understanding that helps to break down the illusion of what we think sport is Mm -hmm. into what it actually is. And then we can begin to appreciate it again for what it actually is and not what our fantasy of it is. Right, right. I think you want me to explain what it actually is. Yeah, no, keep going. Keep going. I was going to say something else, but keep going. Okay. So it is a place where you do get to showcase your will, showcase your effort and take it there. But it is not strictly that place where nothing else in the world exists. Like we can appreciate the players and the work that they've put in. We can appreciate the tactics that are happening. But again, we don't have to exist, like pretend that it exists as this thing that's on its own island away from the world. Sport is a reflection of society. Right. So when you when you say like we don't have to act like it's its own place in the world, like what do you exactly mean by that? So, I mean, I saw this a lot at my master's program, right? So like right when I started studying at the master's level was when Kaepernick was taking knees, right? Okay. And exposing that, oh, hey, football actually isn't this great place, right? I put this up in one of my sport management classes. Like, do you know how many owners of color there are in the NFL? Two. Or two? Yes. Not bad out of 32, right? So, I mean, (laughs) and it was hilarious because right before, and this is what's really great about the Kaepernick that not enough people pay attention to, right before he started doing this, do you know what the NFL was concerned with specifically what they were giving um, multi-thousand, multi-ten of thousand dollar fines out for? 
No, no. Touchdown celebrations. Oh, wait. Okay. All right. Yes. Yes. They were more concerned about that. Yes. So right before, right? So that is creating a problem that isn't a problem, right? That is, that is looking at sport as this thing that only happens on Sunday on your TV. And we need to make sure that it reflects the values of America. We need to make sure that we don't have these people dancing around celebrating, right? We need mm. the Belichick to do your job. And Kaepernick goes, okay, great. I'm a Neil. And immediately, <laughs> when's the last time you heard about a fine for a touchdown dance? immediately the owners turned around and they go, no, that's fine. You can celebrate. You can celebrate. Let's go back to the, so let's talk about the celebrations again. Ah, yeah. So that's what I mean by it's no longer this place where it's nothing else exists, where we can debate the ethics of a touchdown celebration. Right. Right. Yeah. And now I understand because people, literally use sports as a way to get away from the world. But in reality, guess what? You're still in the world. It's mm-hmm. not, it hasn't gone anywhere. And what you said, like using the Kaepernick, Kaepernick example, like it's there, like it's there in the NFL. And I, I like the example of what you use, like how many, you know, owners there are that are minorities. Like I didn't, I didn't realize that I was saying zero because that's what I truly thought. Like just thinking off the top of my head, because that's as, as I think of the top owners in the league, like Jerry Jones or the, or the Robert Crafts, the, the, you know, all those owners, that's what I first see, but you never, um, I never even actually realized that, which is crazy on my end. Um, but to keep it going a little bit, like, as you said, like it's, it's not really getting away from the world. I'm trying to think of a way to put this, but I, I can't really think of it right now. Um, when it comes to, you know, looking at this stuff and having to understand that it's not going to be um, taken out of the sport, especially now, like what we see with the, the Black Lives Matter movement, all the movements that are now integrated in sport. What do you believe um, will come about this in an ethical standpoint? Do you think that as you just use an example, do you think they'll try to um, you know, focus on touchdown celebrations rather than focusing on an issue that should be focused on? Or will they focus on, you know, you can't wear, wear these color shoes in the NBA? Or, you know, do you think there will still be ways to try and get away from that? Or do you think um, with everything that's happened in the past year that they'll try to embrace it now? It's hmm. a good question. So, from a player's standpoint, I think they're feeling more empowered now to use the platform that they have um, now more than ever, especially with social media. And if it's not written in their contract, if they are allowed free reign to what they're allowed to say publicly via their own handles, I think we'll continue to see a push for progressive movements within the athletes themselves. I think it's in the owner's best interest to get away from that as quickly as possible, create a new situation. So an example I like to like think of is when's the last time you heard about Trump's taxes, right? Not that I care one way or the other, but it went from what should have been one of the biggest political scandals, maybe ever, to not existing in three weeks. They shifted their narrative immediately to a different thing, right, regarding him. But that's what the owners are going to do, right? Um, as I think about it, 
MLB is constantly, now I think they're trying to live within a COVID world, but they are constantly shifting rules right now. Like, what are we talking about with NBA? Well, we're talking about, well, does a shortened season really count? Like baseball fans, all the people that want to talk crap on the Dodgers because they won half, oh, half a World Series, right? So right. we watch, and especially as if you're consuming ESPN because you have uh, Hulu Plus with ESPN, right? Like go, um, if you have access to that at all, commentary is regarding, oh, is this right or wrong? Should we be having them go back to back, this and that? The narrative is never around that. Guess who owns ESPN, right? It comes from our corporate overlords, right? The people yeah. with the money, it's in their best interest to shift that conversation away. I think we're going to see a clash between the players and the owners. But again, if you're the owner and you can control enough of the message that gets across to the fans, eventually the fans are going to be like, you know what? I don't care. Just, just play the damn game. I want to see my sport. Or right. even if they don't necessarily subscribe to that notion, it is just like, oh God, another, okay, another progressive movement. I get it. Like, haven't we... Come on, I wore the shirt. Haven't we done this already? And again, like that is definitely more of a perspective you're going to see from uh, people who look like me who are making over $100,000 a year. However, it is what it is, right? Like eventually sport is that escape. And even though we are currently facing the realities of society now, without the athletes continuing to use their platform to push for a progressive movement, it will go away because that's all the owners want to do is push that story away. Yeah, that's, that's definitely interesting that you bring that up. And now that um, you do bring that up, I think about it and realize it even more. <laughs> like, honestly, again, like with the Kaepernick example you used, Hey, he, he was trying to get involved in like real life stuff. And then you wanted to go focus on touchdown celebrations, right? <laughs> Mm -hmm. Oh, we should be focusing on the player's health. Like you can't cram, in my opinion, you can't cram 72 games into an NBA season because you got to look out for the health. Mm -hmm. No, let's shift it to a different narrative. Very interesting. You bring that up. And I hope that opens, you know, the eyes of a lot more people because why is it that we're focusing on the dumbest stuff that makes no sense, but we can't even talk about real life issues, real life issues. And I think the owners, as you say, again, like they're the first ones that are about getting away from real life issues. They don't want to talk about the real life issues. And um, I think it's important. Did you see that Dwayne Wade is becoming an owner of the Utah Jazz? I didn't. That's awesome. Yeah. Yes. And I think that's huge because then you're getting guys like Dwayne Wade who, is who have gone through all of this, who are now going to be able to have a, a say in this. And not just a say for himself, but a say, a say for all the athletes and players in, um, among, amongst the leagues. I think it's very important. And as we keep going a little bit, I think, you know, Kevin Garnett was trying to become an, over, an owner of the Timberwolves. I think LeBron James, I think that's not a question. I think he's going to be an owner of a team one day. So I think as those guys start to integrate who have gone through uh, this era that we're going through currently, I think more of those conversations will be integrated um, into what they talk about. Well, what, how do you, how do you see it? How do you see it off of what I just said? So I'd be careful with using, well, I guess I was thinking of Michael Jordan. 
uh, instantly as he became a Bobcats owner. And in my head, he is not an example I want to hold up, right? Like he's very much, because his, I mean, one of his biggest examples was OJ Simpson. Now, I'm, I'm hoping you've listened to enough hip hop in your life that like you've heard um, um, Jay-Z, right? Yes, so, yes, Jay-Z, yes. So the song OJ, right? So OJ came out with, I'm not black, I'm OJ, right? So he said, I'm going to sidestep the race conversation. I'm not going to be a part of it. Keep paying me my money. Jordan was very much the same way. He was never outspoken about anything, like as far as what he faced. He knew he was in there to make his money off endorsements because he was the world's most famous athlete at that time. So like I got worried when I saw Jordan become an owner because I said, you're not going to do anything like you're involved with like you are Nike's baby and (laughs) Nike's got some very interesting decisions in their, let's say, hiring and production processes. And so, I mean, you know where all the shoes are made. You know yes. how much they pay for their shoes. Yeah. Anyways, so hey, you're paying for the paying for the logo, not the clothing. Yeah, it does look good though. Anyway, <laughs> so with Wade, I think we might actually see a little bit of difference being made, but he's he has also had the experience of being. Do you know anybody that's got a bad thing to say about D Wade? Not really. All right, there's a, another book that I was reading a few years ago. Um, Except anyways. for Rashawn Rondo, maybe. Rashawn Rondo probably has some bad things to say about him, considering he, like, broke his elbow. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. But for the most part, like, that is someone who, much like Derek Jeter, right, who's another player owner, much like Derek Jeter, most people only have good things to say about him. You can be a hardcore Red Sox fan and be like, I mean, whatever, I don't like the guy, but I, he's class act, right? And that's kind of how a lot of people view D Wade. So with that experience where, again, you kind of came up as the likable, someone who could almost be a NBA representative, an NBA politician, you may find that he's more willing to play the corporate game than the player game, right? Meaning he's not as willing to push for player interests as he will be to be seen as a good owner, right? Because look at the conversation around Phil Jackson. It wasn't because he was always a player's coach, right? But he became an owner. And then all we would talk about is how much of a terrible owner he was, right? Because he wasn't winning enough games. He wasn't making the right moves, this and that. And it wasn't, well, maybe he's actually doing more for the players, like helping their experience. But all we want to talk about is, well, you were a player, then you're a coach, then you're an owner. All people talk about with Jordan is like that – that his teams are a joke right no they really they really are though (laughs) so it makes me worry right because again he may be someone who you know he's taken the social media he's like gotten on he's with the movement so i'm about that but he may be someone who wants to be seen as not only like progressive and acknowledging the movements but like a skilled and savvy owner like he can be that first one to make the transition Right. So with owners, I guess you could say like when we were just talking about it, like when Michael jo- Jordan became an over uh, an owner, you saying he played the corporate game. So when you become an owner, do you think like like D Wade becoming an owner now? You kind of just said it a little bit. Do you think that is 
the way they always try to go? Do you think they they consider, um, you know, the player first over the money? You know, how do you think the the situation is becoming an owner and seeing how all the other owners you know, do their work? I think the if we ever see it, the first example that we'll see of a former player becoming an owner who emphasizes the needs of the players is going to be LeBron James. If he ever gets there. I firmly believe that too. I mean, for whatever reason, I just hate him as a player. However, <laughs> he's probably the most wonderful human being I've ever heard of in my entire life. I mean, right. pays for kids within his community to go to college, like continues to give back and he does it quietly. I mean, he quietly gives back and uplifts his community, making it a better place to actually live. Like he does that wherever he goes. He's still with the same woman for God's sakes. He's a professional athlete that at least at this point doesn't have a public scandal about it. And he's one of the world's most famous. Yeah. Even Kobe Bryant, rest in peace, man. Like you got caught bad. So and he's probably one of my favorite people in general. I think he'll be the first one to who can actually make a shift because not only has he made great lifetime earnings within like his NBA salary. Mm -hmm. He's got a billion from Nike. I'm pretty sure he's invested that to a good place. So if he wanted, I think he could be the first person who could go beyond that and just say, listen, I am here to enhance my players experience to support them in whatever way possible. And I'm going to do that because this is what's important. I have to firmly agree with you firmly. Like LeBron James is the one dude who's going to let his voice be heard, no matter who it is trying to argue with him, no matter who is standing in front of him, he's going to say what's on his mind. And I, you know, I hate LeBron James as well because he's been owning the Celtics for the past like 12 years. Thank God he left the East. Thank God. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, like LeBron, like I can, I can see him being, you know, that the first owner a revolutionary owner, I guess you could say, because he's going to be the one that's going to attack first world, uh, uh, not first world, just world issues rather than what is an issue on the field, like a touchdown celebration. You think LeBron cares about a touchdown celebration? He'd rather see the guy celebrate, you know, right? He's going to attack like the issues in the WNBA, right? Where they had their issues going on, where they have their viewership issue, where they have the issue with the team owner who was um, a representative of Georgia, I believe. Correct. Or I, I I'm Sounds pretty right sure. To me. Yeah. Point. Yeah. She was a representative of Georgia. Um, she was the owner and then she sold the team, which is good because like, I don't think she should have owned it after the stuff that was going on, but with LeBron James and all that he's done and the amount of hate that he gets for what he does is, is kind of unbelievable. Um, I could see that out of him. Honestly, I could see him, doing the right thing rather than doing it for the money because he does at this point, like Michael Jordan doesn't really need money. Michael Jordan is set on life. I mean, a lot of those owners obviously don't need money, but then again, their passion is to get more money rather mm -hmm. than being passionate to try and solve issues or fix things. Yeah. The difference is like using it as a financial investment and or not like, because that is literally just a business for them. Right. Right. And some of these owners, I feel as though they 
look at it as they're playing a video game. I, that's that's how my Robinhood account is. I think I care <laughs> about UAL, but they are making me money hand over foot right now. Oh my God, Robinhood. Oh, that's another conversation in its own right there. <laughs> um, yeah, Robinhood, like a video game. Uh, Dogecoin. <laughs> I made my money off Doge. That was fun. Yeah, Doge went up a little bit. I invested at the wrong time, and then they came crashing down. I'm down a lot. Whatever you do, don't invest in Doge right now. Wait until, <laughs> wait until well, you see, see a was, peak. I was lucky. I was way back in the beginning when it was like a third of a cent. Yeah. Yeah, you got you got your day, you got your payday. <laughs> I had it back in like February. Uh, you know, Mardo, Mardo right. and I were holders of it, and then we sold it, and then of course it had to skyrocket. Yeah, no bad decision, yeah. bad decision for sure. Could have seen a lot come out of that. Why well, you got to go long term with everything? Yep, that's why I have to be patient. <laughs> Nowadays, people want it done right away. Being a college kid right out of college, they want you to get a job right away. That's why I'm struggling so much right now. I'm so anxious about it. I'm supposed to have a job as soon as college ends. That's what it is. That's the stigma, though. Don't Um, buy into it. It's all nonsense anyway. No one's going to care. Yeah. Yeah, no. No one cares. (laughs) No, they're not. Not at all. Just got to get on your grind in your own way, you know? That's, That's what it's about. Um. Before we end the show, because we're coming towards the end of the show, I, I know like my PowerPoint, I had a time limit on it, but I went over, <laughs> unfortunately, like I did yesterday in my presentation, which I apologize for. I want to ask you one more important question, which, you know, coming from an ethics professor, a lot of people would probably enjoy hearing. And we've had this conversation in class. Mm-hmm. Should, in your opinion, just to end the show, should college athletes get paid? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> why? Why? Simple answer right there. Yep. Now why? I mean, it's, it's easy for me, like outside of like making sure there's food or scholarships or any of that, like if there's profit made from NC2A athletics, it should go back into their pockets. Full stop. End of sentence. Like from a moral standpoint, like, the college isn't reinvesting that and getting better professors so that you have a better education as a student athlete at, well, UC Berkeley doesn't count, but anywhere else, right? At Alabama, no one one (laughs) gives a crap about who your professors were there. Like essentially all that's happening is that licensing, merchandising, all that's taking place. And whoever ultimately like your conference is, that's kind of where the big money's coming from. Then it's getting shared out, but okay, great. It's awesome that we have football coaches that are making $5 million a year. Fuck that. They don't need that money. (laughs) Who are going to stop playing football, basketball, whatever after this. And if it's in, you know, the small sports, golf, whatever, they'll be fine. They'll go on, but like give them a little taste, but, there is no reason why we need to continue having hundred plus million dollar stadiums, coaches that get severance packages of $5 million that make more than their athletic director. What are we doing here? There's plenty of money to give to these athletes. And there's plenty of money if we're looking at it from any sort of a sharing perspective that the big D1 schools make enough throughout all the SEC and the Pac-12 and our major divisions that 
we could trickle that down. Yeah. I'm in agreement with you. I am. Like I, we had this conversation in class. I got shit on it for it basically because I was in agreement. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to bring up the specific example that was made. Um, but the person who made the example, your experience is a lot different from what other people's experiences might be, you know, and a lot of these kids, although they may be going to a D1 school, it doesn't necessarily mean they're getting the D1 life of getting free food, getting all the extra things that go into it, especially these athletes are basically they know what they're getting into. They know they're going to college to play that sport. They know that they're not going to make money. But there is no other route for those. At least they don't know there's no other route for those players to go. Right. They join the NCAA because that is their best chance of getting to the next level. Right. But once leagues start to form i think this will happen down the road i i think once or it's a possibility i think once like amateur leagues start to form if if it is possible and sustainable then a lot of those top athletes might say screw the ncaa and go play in that amateur league where they're actually getting compensated for it now yes the sec all those massive conferences if people just do the simple 30 seconds of going on Google and searching how much did the SEC made, how much did the Pac-12 made? Yes, there is definitely enough money there to go around. How, in your opinion, would you distribute that money? Would it be like they get like a stipend to go get food or, you know, is it like a salary that these college athletes would get? Like what, in your opinion, would be like a good way of, of compensating these college athletes if, they should get paid. Yeah, complicated answer, right? Um, there's no simple way to do it. Again, it takes a more financially uh, determined mind than I have. Like I kind of know a few simple truths about numbers and then I move on with my life. What would be the most fair way to do it? Um, I mean, it, honestly, at the end of the day, like if nothing else, you should have as much money in your pocket as someone who's working a minimum wage pizza job at 25 plus hours a week, right? If nothing else, it shouldn't be a slap in the face because ultimately that's what you're giving up. Like you are still engaging in that time management skill because, well, we can all, let's just pretend it's actually only 25 hours a week instead of what it actually is. But as we go with that, like there should at least be that limit, right? Like whatever your minimum wage is within that state, like you should be compensated and again, I'm not saying that what you do is minimum wage. I'm saying as a starting point, not a bad way to go about it, mm -hmm. right? Because if nothing else, you're still reaping those same benefits. You still become a, you know, someone who was a previous college athlete, but at least if nothing else, you get to walk away with a degree and then maybe, maybe you have an extra grand in your pocket every month, which again, at 22 is it, at least it keeps you in beer money. Like if nothing else. Yes. I can attest to that. It does help with beer money. <laughs> but yes, like another thing that comes from, you know, these big time college athletes is they don't even have the time. Their, their full-time job is doing that sport. Mm -hmm. And 
a lot of people, you know, there might or there will be people out there that say, well, they have the choice to do that sport or not. So like they could quit the sport and go get a job like no, like that is their job. Like they feel they can reach the next level doing that. Then that is their job currently. Then that they are practicing to get to that level. They absolutely could. And again, if we were comparing it to a situation that used to exist within this country where you could work 800 to 1,000 hours in one calendar year, which by the way is part-time, is 20 hours a week. If you could do that and pay your tuition as well as your rent, great. Like I, I am with it. If that was a situation that existed for these athletes, 100% you're right. And maybe we reprioritize here. But the fact that most of our parents, grandparents who went to college have the ability to look back and say, well, I worked minimum wage and I paid for everything in school. Well, the value of your dollar at that point was so extreme compared to ours because the median income has not shifted in the last 50 years and inflation has done what inflation does, <laughs> right? So if we existed within that reality, yeah, that's a different conversation. We exist in ours where you are talking at a minimum wage standpoint, you would need to work. Let's just use assumption, for example, you would need to work 6,000 to 6,500 hours in a year to cover food, rent, tuition, assuming you had no academic help at all. Let me just do the math here. Calculator <laughs> on my phone. See how many hours there are in a year. Because again, typically someone who works full-time works 2,000 hours. So if we have 24 times 365, great. So you would have an extra 2,000 hours a year to uh, sleep. Basically. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> so that answers that question. <laughs> There's that. So college athletes... Again, they don't get the time. They basically get exploited for their time. Mm -hmm. And all that money, once again, goes into the pockets of the people that probably don't need it that much. There it is. That's how I want to end the show right there. It's easy. It's simple. College <laughs> athletes them. should get paid. There's just, there we, we got to figure it out. There's definitely a lot of money to move around. There is. Um, so since we are coming towards the end of the show, mm -hmm. I just want to say this was an awesome conversation. I want to thank you so much for doing this and stepping into the world um, and taking time out of your day. Because I know being a professor, probably a busy man. So you got a lot of papers and all that to grade. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, besides doing your research, right? Because you are also researching. Um is there any way for people to find you at all? Is there any accounts that you want to plug in to the end of this show for people to follow you or anything like that? I mean, I don't do it for the follows, man. But yeah, I mean, I have an Instagram. I don't use Twitter. Um, I should, though. But yeah, pretty much only on Instagram. Um, and then my email is just kind of widely available in case anybody ever wants questions, answers, all that. Yeah. So you can find them all through that. If you do want to actually get to know Professor Bryant here, take his class, Ethical Responsibility in Sport, right? It's a great class. I highly, highly suggest you take it. 
Because if you want to have a better understanding about the world in sports and outside of sports, this is the class that will help you with that for sure. So again, I want to thank you so much for stepping into my world. This was an awesome conversation. A lot to be said on this show. Everyone, you can find me at Sheehan's World Pod on Instagram, Sheehan World Pod on Twitter. Um, I have been extremely active on the Instagram. I have a giveaway going on right now, so make sure you check it out. Until next time, can't wait to have you step into my world again. Thank you so much, and I'll catch everyone next time. Peace out.